Good morning, FCF. Uh, good to be with you this morning, and I'm really excited to share this portion of God's Word with you. This is the second message in the series that we're calling Acing the Tests. And the premise of the series is this. We find all throughout Scripture that the Scripture teaches that God tests us or tries us, and we have to kind of understand what that word. Um, the word in the New Testament, it's a Greek word, parazo. If it's used in a verb form, it means to, to be tested or tried. Uh, in noun form, it's parazmas, a temptation or a trial. Likewise, in the Hebrew, that's translated to the Greek in the uh, Septuagint version, it's the same word. So here's the thing about this word parazo or parazmas. You have to look at it in its context, which means the verses that go before and the verses that go after, to really know what it's talking about. In other words, it can sound like God's testing us because He's unsure of what we may do or what we have learned. Uh, on the other hand, if it means He's trying us, putting us through a trial, putting us through testing, it can have an entirely different meaning. Now, I want to start you today by asking yourself a question. Do you think you can point back to a time in your life where the best that you could humanly tell, and this is not easy for us, but the best that you could humanly tell, you look back and you think, you know what, I think God was taking me through a time of testing or trial. Okay, that's question number one. Do you think you can locate something like that in your experience? Question number two. If you believe that you were going through a time, and you might be going through that time right now, of testing or trial, where God is, is taking you through testings or trials, why do you think He was doing that? Is He testing you because He's uncertain about what is inside of you, what you may do? Is He testing you to show what you're made of? I mean, what, what is the reason for the testing? Now, I'm going to take you to a portion of Scripture with those thoughts kind of in the back of your mind, I'm going to take you to a portion of Scripture. And we're coming to the Israelites' journey through the wilderness where they have now left Egypt and they have been in journey for 40 years. And by the way, uh, they were in journey for 40 years, not because Moses was a man and he was too embarrassed to ask for directions, as some people are prone to say. No, that is not the case at all. The fact of the matter is, is that after God miraculously delivered the Israelites out of Egypt with 10 tremendous miracles to bring them out. Then he, you know, he opens up the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his army are chasing them, closes it back on Pharaoh. So it was a supernatural event in delivering probably three million people, at least a million and a half, uh, from Egyptian slavery. So God brings them out and he's taking them, of course, it says, to the Promised Land. He promises them they're going to have their own homeland, they're going to live in safety and peace. The land is abundant in what it produces. And they're going to be His people. God's going to reveal, God's doing something new with Israel. He's going to reveal Himself to them, and He wants them to write down the record. And He's going to reveal Himself through them to the rest of the world as they obey His will and word. So that's the plan. They are going to be a people that God reveals Himself to. They're going to take down the record. Then he's going to, they're going to be a people that He reveals Himself through to the rest of the world. So, they get out of Egypt. Um, it's about 14 to 16 months. God gets them right to the border of the Promised Land. And so they get to the border of the Promised Land, and then the wheels start to come off. Now, we'll look at some scripture that talk about this in a bit. But what I'm going to now read to you is a verse from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. And that's where we're going to be today. 
But Deuteronomy 8 is, is at the end of the 40 years. Now remember, they get right to the border of the Promised Land in about 14 to 16 months. But the journey turns in to 40 years. When you come to Deuteronomy, the entire book of Deuteronomy, the 40 years have transpired and now they're ready finally under Joshua to go into the Promised Land, uh, unlike the first generation that was not ready to go in. So let me read you this verse, or actually two. I'm in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Now listen to this part very carefully. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you to humble and test you, listen to this, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. Now I'm going to pause there, and I want to suggest that when you or I or anyone first reads that, it sounds like God led them through the wilderness because He was not sure what was in their heart. He wanted to see whether or not they would be, to be obedient to Him. I'm going to read it again because I just think it's you know, that important that we get this. Remember, verse 2, how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. First, first pass. It sounds like God Himself was not sure what was in their heart and whether they would keep His commands. Let's be honest. That's what it sounds like. But you know, perhaps, and I certainly know after all these years of studying the Word of God, that is not consistent with what is revealed about God in many other parts of Scripture. Let me share with you one verse that just kind of gives you the other side of this. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 10, it says, But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Listen again. But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. So here we have a verse, and there are other verses in Scripture as well, that say that God sees my heart. He knows what is in my heart. I don't know what's in my heart. My, my heart is deceptive to me. I can trick myself. The verse before that one in Jeremiah 17:10, it's 17:9, which says, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. We, we, we don't know what's in our own heart, but the Scripture teaches God does. He sees our heart. He sees our secret motives. If that's the case, why does it say He took them through the wilderness to 40 years to test them, to try them, to see what was in their hearts, whether or not they would obey His commandments? Is that a contradiction in Scripture? Or is it perhaps that there's something really wonderful and beautiful going on here that we're going to learn about what it means, why God tests or tries his people, why God takes His people through tests or trials. Are they a discovery process for the Almighty? Well, we just read in Jeremiah 17, that's not the case. So if they're not, what in fact does this mean? And this is where we, we're going to find wonderful, beautiful things out about the way that God works with us as His people that I hope you'll tuck away and there'll be a, a transforming comfort to you for every circumstance that you ever encounter in your life. So. I want to start by um, looking at three components of 
what this heart test reveals. And so God tests our hearts. There's no doubt about that. He says it right in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 8. But what is this about? Now, I'm going to go on and read you some more verses in Deuteronomy. So I'll read verse 2 one more time. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 4, your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Verse 5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. That's a key. That's a key right there. What does it mean to discipline? Sometimes we hear that word discipline and we think that it means punish. It does not. It does not. It talks about development. It talks about a process. It talks about a program to see to it that the kind of development comes forward that we were always designed to indeed have. So here we have it. So let's try to figure out why would God get these people to the promised land within 14 to 16 months and then the journey turns into 40 years. So the first thing is that we find that the reason God takes them into the wilderness for 40 years and He humbles them, they're deprived of food in the wilderness. They, they can, you cannot feed a million and a half to three million people in the wilderness. And so God sends something called manna. Every day it would shower this kind of cream of wheat-like stuff down from heaven. And the Israelites had to gather it each day. And that's what they lived on. They lived on this stuff for 40 years. It was truly angel's food. It was supernatural. You're keeping a million and a half to three million people alive, feeding them supernaturally. You find in the journey that God also provided water for them throughout the journey. He provided water straight from the solid rock uh, on two different occasions. So they're being sustained in the wilderness where there were no resources to sustain them naturally was a supernatural thing. And it didn't just happen for a month, it happened for 40 years. So what was the problem? Now I want to take you to a verse and a portion of scripture that takes place when the Israelites get to the promised land in that 14 to 16 month period. So let, let me tell the story quickly. They get to the promised land border and God tells them, here it is, it's yours. They send out spies, they check out the land, they find out, just like the Lord said, it's a glorious land. But they also find out that the land is still inhabited, and it's inhabited by warlike people. Not only that, it's inhabited by the Nephilim, these giant hybrid creatures that were still lingering around on planet Earth. And the Israelites say in chapter 13, verse 33, they say that we, we felt like grasshoppers because our size was so diminutive compared to these giants, these Nephilim, these hybrid offspring. They, they, were, they were part angel, part human. Long story from Genesis 6, you can read it on your own. So the Israelites become terrified. They say the Lord says this land is ours, but we can't, we can't dispossess these people. So, in chapter 14, let me read to you what happens next. Chapter 14 of the book of Numbers I'm reading. This is when they're right on the border of the Promised Land. It says, the whole community was in an uproar, wailing all night long. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The entire community was in on it. Why didn't we, this is what the people say, why didn't we die in Egypt or in this wilderness? And then listen to the next phrase. 
Why has God brought us to this country to kill us? Our wives and our children are about to become plunder. Why don't we just head back to Egypt and head back right now? That's from the message, Numbers chapter 14, verse 1 through 3. The first thing we find is that they had a tremendously deficient image of God. Even though God had done ten wonderful miracles and more, counting the Red Sea opening and closing, to deliver them, not to mention the manna from heaven, not to mention the water from the rock, not to mention the cloud that leads them by day and the fire that protects them by night. They, they were immersed in miracles, but still they had a deficient image of God. Now, the deficient image of God is brought out when they said, why did God bring us out here in the wilderness just to kill us and our wives and our children are going to be plundered? They're, they're, they're going to be just taken as slaves is what they meant by that. Look at the way they believed God was. Look at the kind of being they thought that God was, even though He had rescued them from Egypt and had protected them in all these supernatural ways. Deficient images of God, folks, it's not something unusual. I mean, I've encountered them all through my life as a Christ follower. You listen to people talk and you can pick up that their image of God is not accurate. Think about, think about insurance companies alone. What do they call tornadoes, earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunamis, floods? What do they call them? Acts of God. What a deficient image of God it is. It's, it's kind of putting the responsibility for everything catastrophic on God. It is not God behind those things. In fact, if you read the book of Job, you learn in chapter 1 that in fact it's, it's dark, demonic forces, devil, the devil himself that's behind the upheaval, the destructive upheaval on the planet. Another, another message, another time. But nevertheless, God is given credit because people have a deficient image of God. Think of some other images that I have found through the years. Now, I'm going to kind of run a little list that I put together. I, I find people, and I found this for, you know, going nearly on 40 years now, people sometimes view God as this cosmic cop. He's just kind of watching everyone, and boy, if you get out of line, he's right there with his billy bat waiting to just smack you. Others, very close to it, they view God as this, this almighty, ever-watchful eye, the judge who's always ready to condemn. He's all about condemning people. He's all about sending people to their eternal destiny. They primarily think of God in terms of eternal destiny. He's this judge. Others see him as this royal, offended deity. He, he's he's like, kind of like this emperor that's been offended. Our neglect of him, our breaking of his laws has offended him. And he's angry now, and something must be done to resolve his anger problems. Many people see God as angry, and they're just looking for something that will cause God to be appeased toward them. And that leads to the next view of God. There's not a few people that have a deficient image of God. They see Him as this, this appeasable entity. In other words, they think that, okay, the thing with God is, is that He's a little unusual, and you have to find out what he likes. If you can just find the correct ritual, if you can just do the right thing, you can get him off your back and on your side. If you, if you light some candles, if you go on a pilgrimage, if you give some money, if you say some prayers, if you read his word day in and day out, whatever it is, we come up with these formulas. If you go to church every Sunday and never miss a Sunday, whatever it might be, we come up with these notions, and I meet this again and again in folks. It's a deficient image of God, that he's this deity that you just have to find the formula, you have to find the ritual to appease him, and then you can kind of control him. Well, well what kind of a being does that make him? That's acknowledging that we, we are afraid of him, and we want to find a way, if possible, to control him. There's another image of God that I find pretty common. It's this one that 
He is this completely impossible to understand entity. You know, for us to try to understand God, it would be like a cockroach trying to understand a physicist. And yet that is not at all true. That is not what is revealed in scripture about God. God designed us in his own image. He's given us the capacity not just to understand him, but to experience life the way he himself does. Not an accurate image. It's a deficient image of God. But a lot of people will hold to that image. There's a couple more. One is this. Well, actually, I have one more here. He's this kind of grandfatherly, not a father in heaven, but he's kind of a grandfather in heaven that is pretty much permissive to everything. And everyone, ah, he knows nobody's perfect, so it really doesn't matter. Just, just kind of learn as you go. Figure it out. I know you're going to make mistakes. Whatever you do is okay. Whatever you believe is okay. Just give me a little respect here and there, and we're all right. He's kind of this, gr this grandfather, this almost senile grandfather in heaven that is unconcerned about our behavior at all. But just think of how, how deficient that is. What a terrible parent that would be that would not be concerned about the behavior of their child. The Israelites... And many times you and I have deficient ideas about God, and this will hold us back from experiencing what God wants us to experience and doing what God wants us to do. The Israelites, they didn't understand that their deficient image of God was going to make it impossible for them to fulfill the mission that God wanted them to fulfill. Remember, He brings them to the Promised Land in about 14 to 16 months. They had to go and take the Promised Land from the Canaanite uh, inhabitants. In other words, they had to engage in combat. They were outgunned. Uh, these Canaanites were experienced warriors. The Israelites were not. But the Israelites were there to trust God to give them the power somehow to win these victories. And with a deficient image of God, you won't fight the battles that God wants you to fight. We won't win the victories that God wants us to win and that we can win. We won't get engaged in the struggle with evil if we have deficient images of God. Let me show you something that actually happened to the Israelites. So when they wailed and said, God just brought us out in the wilderness to kill us. I just read you that in Numbers chapter 14, 1 through 3. That's when God said, okay. Tell them to turn around. We're not going to the promised land, but they're going to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation has passed and a new generation that grows up in the wilderness that they will be ready to go and enter into the promised land and do the struggle, uh, enter into the struggle that needs to be entered into. But listen what happens. When the Israelites hear that they're now going to be sent into the wilderness for 40 years, they hate that worse than the idea of facing off with the inhabitants of Canaan. So they decide they're going to change their mind. They go to Moses, and in Numbers chapter 14, verse 40, they say, Moses, we've changed our mind. We're, we're ready to go in the promised land now. And Moses says, no, don't do it. God says, it's not going to happen for you. He's, he's not going to be with you because they were not sufficiently with him. They had a deficient image of him. They actually go and they try. They get their ears beaten back and hence they end up wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. Now, on the surface you might think, well, gee, that seems kind of an overreaction by God. You know, they, they had a failure of courage, and God punishes them for 40 years. They wander around in the wilderness. Was it a punishment, or was it what we just read here in Deuteronomy, that God took them into the wilderness to humble them and to test or try to, to put them in a process, a trial, to see what was really in their hearts, whether they would obey the Lord or not. Because you see, here's the truth. 
when the Israelites first came out of Egypt and they get to the foot of Mount Sinai, and that was only about three to four months when they left Egypt. They get to the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. They receive the Ten Commandments, and Moses then goes up on the mountain, and he's up there for 40 days with God. But when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel all say, everything that the Lord has said we will do, we will obey the Lord our God. We will be His people. We will be His chosen possessions. He'll reveal His Word and His truth to us. We'll obey it and live it out. Everything that the Lord says we will do. They really thought they had that in them. But the fact of the matter was they did not. And God knew they didn't have it in them. Their deficient image of God, it led to a deficient trust in God. And when we have a deficient image of God, folks, I can promise you this, we're going to have a deficient trust in God. And when there's a deficient trust in God, we will not be able to follow through with the obedience to His Word and His will. We will not be the life changers that He intends us to be. We will not be the destiny makers that He intends us to be. We will not be the people that He can reveal Himself through to others in the way that He wants to with deficient images of God and deficient trust in God. Let me read you that portion of Scripture to show you how wrong the Israelites were about themselves. In Exodus 24, verse 3, this is when they first received the commands of God. They were only about four months out of Egypt. It says, then, this is Moses, of Moses it's speaking, it says, then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant in which the Lord's commands were written, and he read it aloud to the people, and they said, we will obey the Lord and do everything that he has commanded. They thought that that's who they were, but God knew that was not who they were. He took them into the wilderness not to punish them. This is the big, the big reveal. He took them into the wilderness because he knew what was in them, but they didn't know what was in them. He knew what was in their heart. They didn't know what was in their heart. More importantly, you've got to get this. He took them into the wilderness so that they would learn what was in God's heart. Remember what they said. They get to the border of their promised land. They see the giants in the land, the Nephilim and so forth. And they say, he just brought us out here to kill us and to have our kids and wives sold as slaves. They needed to know what was in their heart because they thought more highly of themselves than what they, they should have. They had a deficient image of God, deficient trust in God, and that always leads to deficient devotion to God. They were not ready to be the people of God on mission. How many times, folks, how many times have we come across people that say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, but they never are engaged in the mission of God. They kind of take a step back and they are observers. Sometimes they're even judges and critics, but they're not sleeves rolled up in the struggle against evil themselves to see to it that the truth about God and the truth about life, the message of Christ, gets out to the others in the world that are still caught, entrapped, ensnared in darkness. And when you have deficient image of God, you're going to have deficient trust in God, and that's going to lead to deficient devotion to Him. We won't be His people on mission. We're not capable of it. So this was the situation that was really going on with the Israelites. And so he goes on later on to warn them about some other, other pitfalls. And I want to pick up reading in Deuteronomy once again. And now I'm going to pick up in verse 11. So in verse 11, he's preparing them now because now it's 40 years later and Joshua is going to lead this generation successfully in about a seven and a half year campaign. They drive most of the Canaanites out. They, they take the promised land for themselves. So in chapter 8, verse 11, it says this. Here's God talking to the Israelites. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, 
his laws, his decrees that I am giving you this day. Verse 12, Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied. In other words, when you hit prosperity in the promised land, verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty, waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble you, to humble and test you, try you, so that in the end, listen to this, to humble and try you so that in the end it might go well with you. God had a developmental plan. He had a blessing plan. It required him to be willing to invest himself to nurture these people, these stubborn, rebellious, faith-deficient people for 40 years. Verse 17, he says, You may say to yourself, this is after they become prosperous, you may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant which He swore to you and your ancestors as it is this day. Now here is where we get into what I call the big reveal. Let me read you a verse from Proverbs chapter 17.3. Proverbs 17.3, and this is the, um, the Passion Version, it says, in the same way that gold and silver are refined by fire, picture this, silver and gold are refined by fire, the fire purifies them, in other words, the Lord purifies your heart, how? How, Lord, do you purify our hearts? By the tests and the trials of life. This puts a very different spin on this. Verse 2 of Deuteronomy 8, it made it sound like God wasn't sure what was in their hearts. Not true at all. God knew what was in their hearts. They didn't know what was in their hearts. But what God was going to do, you've got to get this, folks, because this is one of the most encouraging things you'll ever hear. Even though they were deficient in faith, even though he, they had been the recipients of multiple miracles, they still didn't really trust God. They still had a deficient image of Him, deficient trust in Him, deficient devotion to Him. So what does God do? Does He angrily just punish them in the wilderness for 40 years? No. Like a father. He invests 40 years to nurture them, to demonstrate to them in real time, protracted time, long period of time, to show them that in fact he's nothing like they thought he was, that he's the safest person in the universe, that, that he's the kindest, he's the most loving, he's the most caring, he's the most trustworthy. Remember what we read earlier here? He fed them with manna. They had, they had total vulnerability. They had to depend on God for their everyday meal. He supernaturally feeds them for 40 years. He supernaturally gives them water for 40 years. It says even their clothing supernaturally did not wear out. It says in their feet, which is kind of funny, did not swell. God takes them into the wilderness so that this generation that was deficient in their image of God, deficient in their trust in God, deficient in their devotion to Him, that they would finally, you got to get this, that they would finally learn the truth. There's nobody like Him. There's nobody more trustworthy. There's nobody more lovely. There's nobody in any circumstance 
that we could ever depend on more than Him. He takes them to purify their hearts. Let me read to you that proverb again. It says, In the same way the gold and silver are refined by fire, the Lord purifies your heart by the tests and the trials of life. God was not punishing these Israelites. He was not trying to figure out what was in their hearts. He was trying to develop them. He was trying to purify them. He was trying to build their trust in Him. He was trying to take them from a deficient faith to a place where they would have absolute convictions about God. And you say, how do, how do you go from having a deficient image of God to having convictions about God? Well, you get experience with God. God takes them, not for a week, not for a month, not for even five years. He doesn't even take them for a decade. He takes them for 40 years. They learn every day, every week, every month, every year, every decade. He's trustworthy. He keeps providing for us. He keeps protecting us. He keeps directing us. He directs them by a cloud by day when they're on the move. He directs them by a pillar of fire by night. He protects them from their enemies. They learn in real time. You've got to get this. They learn through true experiences with God until it becomes internal convictions. One thing I now know, God is trustworthy. I know that I can trust Him. I can trust Him in the wilderness. I can trust Him anywhere. I can trust Him when things look impossible. I can trust Him when life seems so difficult that I don't know how I'm going to survive. I will survive if God is with me and I am with Him. They learned it over experience, over time, again and again, and that builds convictions. They, they, they went from a deficient image of God to experience-based convictions about God. They knew now, they knew by experience, He is trustworthy. Folks, some of us, we, 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 we do pretty good when it comes to what I call, you know, eternal destiny faith, for want of a better term. You know, we, we, we trust pretty easily that Christ is willing to forgive our sins and give us eternal life if we'll turn to Him in trust and become His followers. It's this real-time, day-to-day stuff that we struggle with, and yet that's what God wants us to learn, that in our real day-to-day life struggles, when we're in the wilderness, that's the place that's uncomfortable. That's the place we don't want to be. That's the place that doesn't make sense. That's the place where we throw our hands up and say, what in the world am I doing here if God is with me? It's in the wilderness that He wants to show us that He's with us, He's for us, and He's helping us to develop in the only way, you got to hear this, He's helping us develop the, the only way that we can. I'm going to tell you something, I'm a hard learner. Most of the important lessons I've learned in my life, uh, God's literally had to beat them in my head. They've taken a long time. I, I'm a slow learner. I have to learn things the hard way. I don't think that's a terribly unusual thing for us. The good news is we have such a loving Father that He will invest in us even when we're rebellious, inappreciative, deficient in faith, just as he did these Israelites. The testing was, was not that he was wondering what was in their hearts. He knew what was in their hearts, but he wanted this trial, this trial to bring their hearts into a different condition from deficient faith or de- from deficient trust to a place of convictions, experience-based convictions about God. The second thing that produces, once you have convictions about God. You know who He is and you know you can trust Him in real time in any, any and every circumstance in life. Now, you have confidence in God. You get bold. You trust Him. 
less and less things in life shake you, less and less things in life scare you, not because you have some sort of power or some sort of great confidence in yourself, far from it, but you now have had experience with God, you have convictions about Him, and so your confidence in God increases. They went from a deficient image of God to a deficient trust in God, but we can go from convictions about God to confidence in God. And when we have confidence in God, man, we're on that path where now we can be the people that He wants us to be. Remember what God's plan was for Israel. He was going to be revealing Himself to them for the first time in human history. They were to take the record and put it into, uh, into Word, keep it, preserve it, pass it down to the rest of humanity. He was revealing Himself to them. But then He says, my people, if, if I'm going to continue to bless you, you have to be consistent. You have to show the rest of the world what it means to be a follower of the true Creator. So He said, you've got to obey my word and my will. You've got to trust me. So He was revealing Himself to the Israelites. But then as they were trustingly obedient, he would be revealed through them. The peoples of the world would say, these people are different. Look at the laws they live by. Look how superior. Their God is not like the pagan gods. Their God must be the true and the good God. And so when they lived consistent with that, they were united with the purpose of God for their life. And, and the same is true with us today. Now we're called to be the body of Jesus. Jesus sacrificed his body to break down the satanic suspicions that had been built up into the hearts of human beings for generation after generation. Now Jesus has proven that the Almighty God is more trustworthy than anybody in the universe. He's governed by sacrificial love. He proved that on the cross. Now we know the arms of God are open wide in forgiveness toward us and that all He wants from us is to return to Him in trust. And so now we are to be the body of Jesus because He sacrificed His body on the cross, then rose from the grave, ascended back to heaven, now it says in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 that we're His hands, we're His feet, we're His mouth, we're His eyes. It's the same principle with Israel. God's revealed Himself to us through Jesus, through His Word, and now He wants to reveal Himself through us as we live out His Word and become His people on mission. But to be His people on mission, we have to have convictions about God. I know my God. I know He's good all the time. And then I have confidence in God. I know that He will sustain me and deliver me and rescue me and lead me and guide me as long as I am still destined for a mission on this planet. And that leads to the final thing, and that's courage. Courage because of God. You see, the Israelites were first called to go and to fight to take the promised land. Make no mistake about it. They were told to go and dispossess the Canaanites. The Canaanites had been given a 400-year period. You can read about it in Genesis 15. Uh, God talked to Abraham about it. They had been given 400 years to repent. They did not repent, so God was now dispossessing them from the land, giving the land to His nation that He was going to reveal Himself to and through to the rest of the world. But He wanted His people to learn to take risks, to take risks, to make themselves vulnerable, to put their lives on the line, to enter into uncomfortable, vulnerable risks, trusting in Him alone for the power, for the ability to succeed. Listen, you cannot, I cannot, we cannot engage this battle with evil unless we are willing to put ourselves into the, the discomfort zone, if you want to call it that, unless we're willing to take risk, unless we're willing to undergo some uncomfortable situations and circumstances. We've got to have courage, and that courage that we need to face evil, to be steadfast in presenting Christ to a world that does not want to hear about Christ, 
and is increasingly hostile toward Christ, the only way we're going to have the courage to live out God's Word and share God's Word with our mouth, to invest in people and invite people into the Kingdom of God and into our places of worship, the only way we're going to get that courage, once again, we've got to go from a deficient image of God to experience-based convictions about God. We've got to go from deficient trust in God to a place of confidence in God. And then we'll go from deficient devotion in God to a place of courage, courageous devotion to God. We will have the courage to make the risk. We will put our lives on the line. We will order our lives so that we are available to serve God anywhere, any way that we possibly can. We will take our place in the body of Christ, whatever that place may be, and we will serve with faithfulness, we will serve with loyalty, and we will not let the dark forces ever turn us to a disadvantage where we disgrace our God or where we hinder His work on this earth. But that takes courage, and it's a courage that only comes from convictions about God and confidence in God and then that courage for God. I want to share some verses from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that kind of get us wound up of this message. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, and this comes from Deuteronomy in chapter 8 that we just read, it says in Hebrews 12, 5, it says, And have you forgotten His encouraging words spoken to you as His children? He said, My child, don't underestimate the value of the discipline and training of the Lord God. That comes from Deuteronomy 8. Or get depressed when He has to correct you. Don't underestimate the value of His discipline and His training. That's what the wilderness proving and testing was about. And don't get depressed when He has to correct you. It goes on and says this in verse 6 and 7, For the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He corrects each one He takes as His own. Verse 7, it says, Endure hardship as God's discipline. Wait, wait a minute. How can we know when God is disciplining us? How can we know that when we're receiving the loving, fatherly discipline, training, molding, shaping, developing of our God, that's what discipline is, how can we endure hardship? That means, folks, you got to get this, it means anytime I go through hardships of any kind, anytime you go through hardships of any kind, as a Christ follower, God is using hardship just like He used the wilderness for the Israelites. It's, it's meant to develop us. It's part of His training. Listen to this. It says, endure hardship as God's discipline and rejoice, and rejoice that He is treating you as His children. For what child doesn't experience discipline from a parent? Verse 11, now all discipline seems to be more pain than pleasure at the time. The wilderness was not pleasurable. It seems to be more pain than pleasure at the time. It might be right now. You are in a disciplinary cycle and it is bringing you to the end of yourself. It seems like nothing but painful. You don't understand it. You don't like it. You don't want it. But remember what it said. Endure hardship, any kind of hardship as God's discipline. Listen, hardships, wilderness experience, uncomfortable experiences that we don't want, they have a way of bringing us to a place of humility. Remember he said he was going to humble them in the wilderness so that they would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11 it says, Now all discipline seems to be more pain than pleasure at the time. You've got to get the next part. Yet later, later, 
it will produce a transformation of character, bringing a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who yield to it. Now this is big. It's saying when we're going through the hardships, if we rebel against it, if we reject it, if we, if we hate it, if we shake our fists in God's face and say things like, why are you doing this? It makes no sense. I don't like you. I don't like it. Well, we, we miss out on the blessing. But if we joyfully say, you're my father, and I don't, I don't like this, but I know you're, you're developing something in my heart. You're purifying my heart. This trial I'm going through, this hardship I'm enduring, it's purifying my heart. It's developing me so that I can be who you always designed me to be, do what you always designed me to do, and experience life on the level that you yourself experience it and be a light to my generation. And I know that you're doing something good. And so I'm going to stay submitted to this wilderness period where I'm enduring various kinds of hardship. So when we're going through these heart tests, it's not that God doesn't know what's in our heart. He knows what's in our heart. It means that God wants to develop something new in our hearts. Let me tell you what happened. That generation of rebellious Israelites that wouldn't trust God, that thought He was out to kill them, they experienced for 40 years the faithfulness, the gentleness, the kindness, the goodness of God. And their children that they said would end up being slaves, they learned for 40 years to trust God's provision, His faithfulness, His kindness. And they followed Joshua into the promised land, unlike their moms and dads who would not trust God. God was doing two things. He was taking the rebellious ones and He was giving them time to learn. They really can't trust Him. He really is a father. He really is good all the time. He was taking the new generation and He was preparing them to be the people of destiny that the first generation was meant to be. Be the people of destiny. We hear this notion all the time, you only go around once in life. Yes, that is true. Forget the bucket list. Be everything that you can be, that I can be for Christ and His kingdom and for eternity. That is something that you and I will never regret. I want to close with an illustration that I hope will uh, give to each of us a, a little bit of a way of measuring the benefit of going through trials, being tried, having our hearts tested, our hearts tried. Not that God is trying to just figure out what's in us, but so that He can develop us and that we can know what's in us and what's deficient. And how we can get to that place where one, something that was once very uncomfortable for us becomes rather routine and perhaps even enjoyable. Let me tell you a story about a guy. His name is, his name is Ian, Ian Sears. And Ian Sears is a meteorologist, but he's not the kind of meteorologist like we see on TV that points you know, to the sides of the weather systems. No, 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 no. Ian Sears is a guy who for over a decade has had an unusual practice. And his practice is this. Whenever there's a hurricane anywhere, Ian Sears is up in a P3 airplane and he is flying into that hurricane. He is flying into the eye of that hurricane. Uh, now here's the thing. Ian Sears says that when you're flying into a hurricane uh, and trying to get to the eye of the hurricane, as, as you go and you get right into the, the wall, the turbulence, <laughs> the turbulence gets more and more extreme. And he says that it's not uncommon because they, they go on these missions in these hurricanes for 12 and 13 hours a day. He said it is not uncommon. And when I, when I read this, I just couldn't believe it. 
I, I told earlier about an experience I had my first time in an airplane when I experienced turbulence, didn't know what it was, terrified me. And it, it probably only lasted a minute or two. He says it's not uncommon for them to have two to three hours, two to three hours going in and coming out, a combination two to three hours of extreme turbulence. He says sometimes it doesn't just jostle them up and down, but even sideways. Okay, but here's the thing. When they ask him in this interview, wow, you know, uh, aren't you concerned about the danger? This is what Ian Sears said. He said, you know what? He said, the most dangerous thing that I do is when I get in my car from my house and I drive from my house to the airport. He says, that's the most dangerous thing. He said, the second most dangerous thing is, is when I go up and down the very steep steps for the P3 airplane that I will fly into the hurricane and ultimately into the eye of the hurricane. So here's the thing. Uh, how do you get to that point? How do you get to the point where something that would be considered intolerable, terrifying, an utter nightmare to most of us, being jostled about in a tiny airplane in a hurricane, the first thing that's going to go through most of our minds is we're going to die, we're going to be destroyed, the airplane's going to be ripped to shreds. And yet this guy, for over a decade, he flies into these things. It's his life. And what he says is this. He's learned to feel safer flying into a hurricane, into the eye of a hurricane ultimately, and then back out than he does when he's driving his car to and from the airport and walking up and down the steep steps to get on his airplane. How do you get there? I'm going to share with you one more time how you get there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. Endure hardship as God's loving fatherly discipline and rejoice that He is treating you as His children. For what child doesn't experience the, the discipline, developmental discipline? He doesn't guess what's in our heart. He knows what's in our heart, but He wants to develop our hearts. For what child doesn't experience discipline from a parent? Now, all discipline seems to be more plain than pleasure at the time. Yet later, yet later, yet later, it will produce a transformation of character. We're hard learners. I'm probably the hardest of all. It will produce a transformation of character, bringing a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who yield to it. Ian Sears has been in so many hurricanes and so many storms. He's learned to endure the hardship and truly enjoy it. He's doing a service to humanity. He's helping others be warned about hurricanes. They're learning valuable information. When we go through wilderness experiences, and our God is with us in those, it's meant to be developmental. He knows what's in our heart, but He wants to instill something deeper, more powerful, more beneficial in our hearts. Remember that verse we read in Deuteronomy? He says, I took you through that wilderness, and I fed you manna, and I humbled you because I wanted to do you good in the end. God always, always, always is working for our good. Romans 8, 28, God, God wants, works all things to the good of those who are called according to His purpose, to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I hope that's you. I hope you love God as He has revealed Himself in Jesus. I hope you have such, such a love for Him that there's not any trial testing in life that you won't go through without acing that test because you don't have a deficient image of God and you don't have a deficient confidence in God. You've got a deep, settled, experiential devotion to God because you have convictions about His trustworthiness. Let's pray, FCF. 
Father, we are so glad. We are so glad that no matter what we do, how stubborn we are, how rebellious, how scared, how terribly we misjudge you, you are so gentle, so kind, so patient. You'll invest 40 years or even more to bring us to that place where we can see that you do love us. You are trustworthy. You are for us. You're never against us. You never, you never cast us off. I pray that the person that may need this the most, may your spirit just speak it into their souls that it will never, ever be dislodged by anything again. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.